All right, so let's let's do this. Okay. So your opening remark to me before our technical problems is that you're very heartened that um, uh, that Oppenheimer is doing very well with critics, but uh, and I'm happy too because I'm very much looking forward to seeing it myself. But I think you have to be honest with each other and, and yourself that people want to be as kind and praising of this film as possible because it's a Chris Nolan film for one thing and it's a uh, effort to make a serious layered uh, adult driven film that's character about character and and it's complex and it's aimed at adults so naturally I mean who wants to put a movie like that down I, I, I want to bend over backwards to be as kind as I can I'm certainly not eager to uh, you know be be dismissive I, no way i mean i just you know yeah i find of, that i find that people who you know, really you're telling me it's still not working no i'm <laughs> not telling you it's still not working it's working oh okay okay i'm just saying that um i'm just saying that the uh the kind of people not... who like movies like barbie and coda yeah they're not gonna like they're not gonna do well with oppenheimer it's not a movie that you can sit back and, and just lazily watch. It's definitely not that movie. You have to be actively engaged with it. It's really hard to figure out. It's it's a puzzle. It's like Inception or any one of his other movies where you have to pay very close attention to everything that's going on. Why? Because it's very dense and complex. You mean with the part of the movie where they're describing what splitting the atom actually means? No, no, no. It's, it's, okay. I mean, it helps again. It helps if you've read the book because the book takes you through Oppenheimer's whole life and that's what he's doing. He's attempting to take us from the, the poignant, meaningful movement moments in his life while using the structure of the court cases to go back and forwards in time. There's no court cases. It's a hearing. Well, whatever the and hearings, whatever they are. Right. Um, okay. they, they play like court cases okay. but you know they go back and forth in time and they just like Inception it all kind of circles into the to the complete whole by the end Okay, it's pulling in from all of these different areas it takes you over to Germany it takes you to his marriage it takes you to the mountains of New Mexico mm -hmm. it takes you through this love affair through that friendship and, and all the things I'm watching it I'm thinking I know what this means but do other people sitting around me have any idea what this means because they haven't read the book they don't know that Chevalier is the is the guy that got him in trouble with the government because he was a known communist and the biggest thing in Oppenheimer's life was called the Chevalier Affair, which was he supposedly met with Chevalier in his kitchen and some information was passed between them. And that yeah. haunted his whole career, just that one little meeting with a friend. Okay. And so when he meets Chevalier in the movie, you're thinking, oh, there's Chevalier. But Nolan doesn't, you know, stop to take the time to explain to his audience who that person is and why he matters. So. If you're not paying attention, it's just going to seem like a scene that is meaningless to you, you know, in the movie. So it's it's little things like that. It's just very dense. And so it's not going to be easily accessible for, for some of these film Twitter guys I see on, you know, screeching on Twitter, which is truly annoying. Well, um, I, I think it's uh, it's fair to say that it's been my uh, impression for, for decades, really, that the very best movies are the ones that appeal to and engage 
the brightest audiences and the dumbest audiences simultaneously. And uh, if you're, what you're saying is this doesn't engage the dumbest audiences, <laughs> which is... It okay. really doesn't, <laughs> which means it can't win Best Picture because of that. Yeah. The only dumb movies can win Best Picture. No offense. Well, movies that, are, that reach you emotionally and, and make you feel something and melt your heart or, you know, just get to you on some primal gut level, that tends to be the kind of movie that works with most people biggest common denominator yeah like so, for instance jeff snyder is saying on twitter right now that he likes past lives better than oppenheimer okay he says i'll take emotion over craft every time which is why he loved coda that's who he is that's how he sees movies but not me i don't see movies that way it's i can't i can't watch a simplistic movie it bores me to tears i thought coda was fine but it was a tv movie yes it was it was perfectly fine and adequate, but it did not deserve to win Best Picture. And I also have to say that Past Lives is um, is has a melancholy element. It's 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 bittersweet. Uh, you can see that this charmed and and uh, destined for wonderful things relationship between these two people, the guy in South Korea and his uh, childhood girlfriend, who is now married. You can see that that should happen. And that they want it to happen, and but it's not going to happen. It's it's, it's a uh, non-starter because of the way she feels. She cares for her husband and so on. So basically, it's a it's a moving film in that sense. But it doesn't really get you that strongly. It's not that great. It's good though. It's a good, respectful film. I, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know why he would get so excited about it. It's it's not that great. I know, but that's what, you know, the thing about the Oscars and film Twitter and all that is that you're just getting, you know, your average person's opinion, which is helpful, I suppose. But, you know, there is still, I mean, it's it's really hard to find now. I don't really see it that much. I used to know it when I was younger, but there did used to be a, a, a group of people or, or writers and thinkers who, who really did, like Manola Dargis was one of these people way back when that really did see film as an art form and talk about it as such rather than entertainment, you know, like there's a place for entertainment too, for sure. But an art form is, is more than just, you know, like a movie that makes you cry, you know, Mm -hmm. um, a movie that makes you cry or a movie that makes you feel good. You know, like you could even argue that everything everywhere all at once, which wasn't my favorite movie it was at least kind of artfully done, you know, like mm-hmm. it, it, they were trying to do something. There was some art to it, but I feel like there, there's such a dumbing down of a flattening. Um, if the Oscars are the ultimate barometer of, of a measurement of worth, then you have a real flattening of, of cinema. I think a narrowing of minds and tastes, and it takes us to a very kind of mediocre place. If everybody has to agree on something, then you're at the lowest common denominator. You know? you know, I think that everywhere, everything, everywhere, all at once was a flattening itself because of its leaning on the martial arts tropes and the fantasy element. And um, I, I don't think that was, you know, it was imaginative from a certain perspective. And I don't put it down for, for trying to, you know, cut loose and, and go a little crazy, which, which it did. Yeah. But it's not a, 
elevating film. It doesn't, uh, you know, do something special and create some kinetic, fascinating vibe. It's just a, you know, kind of a low rent martial arts film, really, you know. Yeah, or, or more like a video game hybrid. Video game, yeah. You know, and yeah. I agree with that. Like, I don't think it took you anywhere deeper, okay. you know. Um, so what's your numerical grade you're giving Oppenheimer? Oh, well, what do you think? I mean... You're giving it a 9 or... Oh, no, nine, for me, five? it's a 10. It's a 10. It's an A+. plus. It's the best, the best of the best. But that's just me, right? Like, I, it, it, it's absolutely to my tastes. 100%. You know me. I like really cerebral movies, just like I like Bob Dylan, because he's a lyricist. And, you know, he has his his lyrics, it's dense with lyrics, as opposed to, you know, people always say that there's people who like the Beatles or people who like the Rolling Stones and people who like Bob Dylan. And the people who like Bob Dylan are the people who like the heavy lyrics, you know, heavy on, on lyrics. Say, you said to me earlier, which is that Oppenheimer is basically the cinematic equivalent of a good Dylan song. Yeah, yeah, okay. with with the caveat that what I warned you about, which is that the, in the theater that I saw it in, um, because Killian Murphy's voice is so soft. And, and velvety, remember the term velvety. That's a good velvety, adjective. Velvety, because that's what Oppenheimer talks like. He got it exactly right. But mm -hmm. I think that, you know, you're seeing a problem that, you know, you wrote about on your site one time, which is why people use closed captioning in movies now. Like, all my daughter always has closed captioning on. Um, or and, why, actually, when I watch stuff at home, I just do it because it's, it eliminates any possible problem in terms of, uh, you know, some, some line being, and you're always missing a line or two when you see it in the theater because there's always, the sound is never quite as, uh, as, as excellent. Yeah, I found myself problem. straining a little on this and I wasn't in a Dolby theater. I wasn't in a good IMAX. I don't think there was good sound, but I was leaning forward and straining a little bit and it does come at you in a rapid fire pace and i mm -hmm. i take owen gleiberman's criticism i think that's a fair and legit criticism that you do feel like when they pull back to that senate hearing even though it all makes sense at the end mm -hmm. you don't really understand where it's going until the very end but once mm -hmm. you get there then you're like oh, okay that's why that scene is important see okay. and even i who's read the book didn't really get it until we see it in the movie at the very end robert downey jr has like all the best scenes um in the movie yeah. especially at the end it's really just the period on the end of the sentence and it does require time to contemplate it's a lot to take in man i mean i i know owen understands all the history of it for sure right like he gets it so does paul schrader right. um younger people i don't know if jeff schneider really gets it you know what i mean Mm -hmm. Like, no offense, but, like, how many of these people actually understand every dynamic and weird nuance of that period of time, which was what they call a fourth turning, just like what we're living through now? I mean, all the things that were at play, right? Yeah. Going from being a communist, a bohemian in the 1930s, how different it was to being a communist in the 1950s. was a whole... I'm sorry about the leaf blowers, but we've already been delaying this too long, so we can't wait for them to stop. So we have to just endure the sound of the leaf blowers in the background. It's okay. It's not too bad. From this Sorry one. about that. But um, you have to understand that. You have to understand what it was to be a communist, Jewish, Democrat, lefty in the 30s as opposed to a... Well, can I clarify here? My understanding is that Robert 
uh, J. Robert Oberheim was never an actual communist himself. No, he was no, friendly. he wasn't. He was a. He was just. He, you know what he was, Jeff? He was a free thinker. He was curious. Yeah. He was interested in things, and he was a compassionate person. And he wanted it to be a more equal world. Right. And so that's what brought him to that. But um, mm -hmm. and he, you know, the woman that he dated, who's Florence Pugh, she was a communist, and she brought him into it. He never officially joined the party. But it didn't matter because once you get to the 1950s, after the Rosenbergs and the Red Scare and all that, uh -huh. any hint of any kind of communist, communism in your past um, it, mm -hmm. is, is going to put you into a difficult situation, which is what happened with him. But, you know, you have to understand that the difference in our, our society and our government before World War II and after World War II and how different everything was. And if you don't get that, you're not going to really be able to understand why this movie is goes from point A to point B to point C, you know, because it is the span of his life. Well, what about the um, uh, remark that Owen made in his review that the second half of it, after the explosion, after the Trinity explosion of July 45, that it becomes a doleful, meditation on the morality of the atomic device and other aspects doleful I, doleful means what boring a little bit a little bit on the glum side glum meaning it's depressing to think of worldwide ex destruction yeah, under energized uh, lamenting uh, not uh, particularly uh, engrossing it's a little bit of a, a little bit of a slog a little bit Oh, okay. Well, I, I'm not sure what direction he wants it to go into. This is a tragedy, this story. Yeah. I mean, they're not going to suddenly break into song. Like, there was no happy ending to be had here. It was so depressing that Oppenheimer's own daughter kills herself later. It's not in the movie, but... Mm -hmm. I mean, this is not a happy story, what happened to him. It's a terrible story. And the only way you really get it is if, you, if that fire burns in you now, which it does in me. And yeah. if you understand that cancel culture and tyranny and paranoia and silencing of dissent and all that was as big of a deal then as it is now yeah and and if if that fire isn't burning within you then this movie's not gonna i i i, I expect that paul schrader certainly felt a little bit of that since they're always smacking him down and telling him to be quiet um I, according to what owen is saying that uh schrader overpraised it uh that's the uh and according to what ehrlich is saying between ehrlich and owen um, I, I wrote in my little assessment of the uh, of the, the two reviews that the person that has taken the hit is not Nolan because uh, I think Nolan has made the film that he wanted to make. He's a masterful filmmaker, and I'll always be rejoicing that he's making films in my time period on on this earth. But um, you know, it seems to be. Uh... Well, I, I'll just say this: I never agree with either of those guys. I really like Owen and I respect him and I think he's smart. I never agree with his taste in movies. He liked okay. that terrible movie with um about uh Whitney Houston, didn't he? Like He did? I think he did. Yeah. I mean I've never liked his taste, ever. Ever. And Ehrlich, no way, man. I sit all the way on the other side. Every so often he'll like something that I like, but no, I don't and, and you know what? I'm not the kind of person like you are. Like I don't care what other people think. The only reason I care what other people think is in terms of, is it going to do well in Oscar season? That's all I care about. I could give a shit what anyone thinks, right? My uh -huh. mind is totally open and free and likes to think what it wants to think. And that's 
hence the mess that I'm in today, right? Like I, I, I'm not a go-alonger. And so I'm not influenced by them. And I, you know, if I found anybody's voice that I really, really respected when it came to taste and film and stuff, probably they're not a film critic. They're probably a, someone in the industry, you know. But I did understand when I was watching uh, the movie why Paul Schrader would have identified with it. Like I could really see shades of Schrader, believe it or not, in there. Um, you know, because it is so morose, right? What, do you, what about uh, another thing that uh, said, I think it was Eric Cohn that said this, that as we all know, uh, Paul Schrader has been, has made three films that are basically a man sitting in a room movies, uh, you know, um, you know, first, first performed and, and then the one that followed, uh, that is, uh, with, um, um, you know, the guy, uh, the, the arms dealer thing, uh, with, uh, ah, God, it's not coming back to me. But then, then there's, the, and then there's the one that uh, just recently came out about the ex-racist, uh, in Louisiana, who's working as a guard, master gardener, master gardener. Mm. He does, he likes these films about a meditative kind of element. Uh, a man sitting in a room contemplating things. And since uh, they believe, at least Eric Cohn believes, there's a lot about this movie. There's basically dialogue and guys sitting in rooms talking to each other. Um, maybe that's why it, it hit Schrader in his soft spot. In his... Mm, I don't think so, no. It's more about persecution. Okay. It's more about persecution. That's what hit Schrader. Uh, his movies are always about that. Yeah, that's true, actually. In fact, this is very like First Reformed, actually. Okay. Um, very uh, like it. How about the yeah. article that Eric Cohn posted um, in which he uh, had interviewed um, Nolan, and, they, and Nolan explained why he chose not to go to Nagasaki and Hiroshima in the story. And he says, because it's subjective. It's all from Oppenheimer's head from his perspective and Oppenheimer did not he was not there for the bombing of these of those two Japanese cities in August of 45 and therefore uh, you know he didn't want to leave the Oppenheimer POV do you think that's a legitimate um, mm -hmm. thing yeah, yeah. Um, they show very they show them talking and showing the, the devastation from um, uh of the war they show them watching it and looking at it and talking about it so they don't just pretend it didn't happen you mean after the the bombs are dropped in uh, in in uh 45 august of 45 they have a like a meeting of activists who are saying we want to stop this because this is what it did and oppenheimer is there and he's looking at all the pictures of the devastation and stuff so they do talk okay. about it but it is it is very much a movie about his emotional reaction to what's happening to him which is why it's like First Reformed in that way, because it does follow the, this, this person's life, which is, is a remarkable life, but also just what happened to him is remarkable. And again, if you're not plugged into what's happening in our culture right now, it's not going to have more resonance for you. And it surprises me about Owen, because it seems like he kind of does get it a little bit. But, he does uh, appreciate the movie. He's not dismissing it or anything. He's saying it's urgent and definitely something that any person who cares about movies would have to see. But he just doesn't think it's as good as it, as it could be. I'm sorry. I'm turning this off. It's uh, as, as good as it could be, I guess. He's kind of, it's a polite 
and respectful. Uh, he's giving it like a B or a B minus or something. That's like fine. That. Yeah. yeah, I think that's fair. You know, like I don't, yeah. I don't have anything, any problem with people being honest. What I don't like is this slobbering all over Barbie. Like that is so annoying to me. Like how can you know this is this is the nightmare that we're living through. Yeah. Is that we're living in a culture that rewards movies like Barbie and condemns movies like Oppenheimer because we're not living in a time of original thought. We're living in a time of forced conformity. Yeah. Exactly. And so, you know, I, I like the original thought. I like engaging my brain, you know, and I, I, I understand what Owen is saying. And I, I'm, I'm sure that a lot of people are going to feel that way. Probably more people will feel like he did than feel like I do. But that's okay. A mixed positive, you mean? Yeah, and especially that first hour is hard to connect with because he's sort of packing it with information. And by the time you get to Trinity, I think in in I think he has you. He's okay. holding you in, and you know what keeps you moving along with the story is knowing what's happening with Louis Strauss. And granted, if you haven't read the book, you might not know that. You might not know what's coming, what the climax of his story is going to be. But if you've read the book and you know the story, you know that this is a sort of an Amadeus Mozart kind of thing where you have two American Jewish men who came up up, up in a country that was very anti-Semitic. Um, one of them was uh, Oppenheimer, who had parents who treated him like, you know, he was the greatest thing in the world. And he was like in college by the time he was like 13 or something like that. And then Strauss was wanted to study physics, but his parents were like, no, you're going into business school. You're going to be a business person and you're not going to go down that road. And um, and he was kind of bitter and sad about that. But he, you know, he ended up becoming very successful. He's a conservative Republican. Mm -hmm. um, the, Oppenheimer is a, a liberal. They were on opposite sides. Yeah. Obviously, both were against Hitler being Jewish. But when Oppenheimer wanted to stop, Strauss didn't. But what what you get from the movie is he's more jealous and vindictive and wants to see him punished um so you know if if that story matters to you and you're interested in it you're going to be interested in the movie if it doesn't matter to you then it's going to be boring for you because you're not going to care about either of these guys and this fight between them you know if you don't care about the destruction of oppenheimer if that isn't something that you worry about and fret about then the story is not going to hold your attention well, I got to ask you something. I've I've never understood why Oppenheimer was so virulently, passionately opposed to developing a much more lethal and bigger bomb, i.e., the H bomb, the hydrogen bomb, in the late '40s, when he had obviously, with some measure of devotion and passion, created the slightly less lethal atomic bomb in the early to mid 40s. So why, why would he draw a distinction? They're both nuclear devices capable of mass destruction. Um, I don't quite get the, you know, I, I, I invented one, I, I, I created one, and I hopefully presumably uh, ended World Wars II sooner with Japan than otherwise if we hadn't had the bomb. But I don't want to see this bigger bomb. I don't quite gets the distinction still the same ballpark right mm. um well no because it was an escalation he in oppenheimer's mind dropping that bomb was a you know was a heat was a warning sign it was it was this is so terrible 
that what we should be doing is moving in a different direction. Mm -hmm. You know, we should be um, reaching out to the Russians and stopping this thing mm. because it's too dangerous. And and so let's 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 broach you know because that's what this movie is about really is about the the fight the war between the scientists who are creators and the uh, what Eisenhower called the military industrial complex. Sure. And they were at odds with each other. The scientists didn't want their science to be used to build weapons of mass destruction, and they were very urgent about this idea. And then Oppenheimer was a scientist, and he didn't like that this was going to turn... He, he could see the future. He could see what it was about to turn into. And they basically said, we're done with you now. Step aside. And he was like, no. And he kept trying to yep. come back to, to the presidents, yep. various presidents, to ask them, please step back. Reach out to the Russians. Stop building these bombs. We don't want the... But they, they, they were not interested. Russia had devised its own atomic device by 49, it was, roughly, correct? Yeah, because they said at a spy, I actually saw a documentary about it, the woman who gave them this, this, the actual spy who was here, who got them the bomb. Really? I, yeah. didn't, I didn't quite fully understand it. You're saying a spy in this country uh, somehow gave them the information, the key information. Yeah, there's a there's a documentary on YouTube about it. I think her name is Rosie. Let me look it up. Who who gave the Soviets the bomb? Um, but but in the movie they say it was somebody who was at Los Alamos who um, who got the bomb to um, to to the Russians. But okay. Oppenheimer was hoping to stop it before it got to that point. Okay. Um, Rosie the Spy. Let's see if I can find that. Um, I think her name was Rosie. Maybe it's not Rosie. Um, uh, all right. I don't know. But there were a lot of spies in the country, by the way, during mm -hmm. that time. A lot of Russian spies. It was a really weird time. Well, I don't, I, I'm, I don't, not having actually lived through it, but there was an intense uh, horror and fear of the Russians and their intentions to. Uh, spread the, communism and and it's you know to have it influence the you know Eastern Europe and and then of course there was the Chinese uh, communist revolution also of forty nine so there's a lot of uh, intense uh, you know us versus them sentiment particularly in conservative circles so what kind of idiot decides that I have an idea. Let's not have any more bombs. Let's let's uh, you know. Let's not have any bigger bombs, even though they might have a bigger bomb. Let's not let's not have anything called the the um, you know balance of power, which is what I think has prevented anyone from being crazy enough to uh, to start a nuclear conflict. Oh, um, she stole the spies from the British, not from America. It says newly declassified MI5 files. Reveal the story of the female spy who stole Britain's atomic secrets and gave them to the Soviets. I got it. Okay. Um, yeah. So that's a whole different part of the story. Um, okay. Well, because that, I mean, your reaction is exactly what Truman's reaction was and what the character Groves that Matt Damon plays. You know, they were like, are you kidding? It is on. The war is on. We're not going to back off. And they especially felt that way after, um, after uh, the war, after they saw Hitler and Stalin, and they mm. saw these monsters in history. They're like, "We're never gonna, 
you know, we just won this war. Are you kidding? We're going to we're going to have hegemony. We're going to, you know, have so many nuclear weapons that no one. Um, but the problem is, is that Oppenheimer could see that that it was tasting something that was very tantalizing. And, and as we if you watch the day after Trinity, you saw that he was right. You saw all those tests. Do you think that all those tests of all those nuclear bombs, thousands of them, that is keeping us safer? Really? Uh, balance of power is the idea, that they wouldn't dare hit us because we would destroy them and annihilate them. I know, but we have so many, and everybody feels that way. It's just a really weird place to be in life. It's a really let's weird wait. place. But let's be honest. Let's, it's been 70, what, 75 years or more? Uh, there hasn't been. Uh, I, th I think that the balance of power thing is is valid. I think that you know mutually assured destruction. I know, but it's kind of like cloning. Think of it like cloning, um, or CRISPR, or embryo building, or all these things. Like we're very close to this moment where we could actually uh, grow embryos in a lab, hack the human genome, yeah. eliminate mothers. You, you know, you have this. It's it, it's kind of like the Pandora's box thing. You, you have this power, mm -hmm. but if everybody agrees never to use it, then that's better than if, but I don't know. I mean, look, we're on the brink of another world war now, so we'll see how it goes. We'll see what happens. We'll see if the nuclear arms race was effective in keeping everybody scared enough it to start. It has been effective. The mutually assured destruction understanding on all parts is, it has kept it. I mean, it's the, the scary part is when you have a renegade or, or rogue power like North Korea. Uh, you know, or Iran. Huh? Or Iran. Iran has uh, nuclear devices. That it, well, I, again, I don't think that even though they're ideological and religious and fanatical, they're not crazy enough to want to use a device against anybody. Everybody just, it's kind of, you know, poker chips or... Some kind of well, I mean, you, you, you're certainly invited to think of it that way, Jeff, if, if you know, I'm, I'm certainly not going to dissuade you of, of that notion, but I'm just telling you what Oppenheimer was feeling back then, how he was feeling, what he was worried about, what he was worried that he just unleashed on the world. The, the he, Oppenheimer view of nuclear weapons was very clear in the films that came out in the early 60s, like Dr. Strangelove and Failsafe, and this is insane, we've got to, you know... Uh, uh, do something about the potential for mutual destruction, mm -hmm. and that's a very scary uh, thing. And let's 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 pull back from the brink. We don't want Armageddon, but I understand that, and I and that was very much of a strong uh, ethos or or you know belief system that was permeating uh, liberal culture and the you know go. I don't know when the first scary nuclear conflict book, but they all seem to start to come out in the early to mid sixties, early sixties, I should say, but. You know, I don't, I don't feel that way because I, it's been, again, 70 odd years and nothing has happened. I don't think it's going to, I don't think that Putin's going to use a nuclear device in Ukraine. Do you? You think he's stupid enough to do that? Cause no, I don't think he is stupid enough to do that. I don't, he's not the one I'm worried about. Um, okay. I'm not worried about Putin. Um, but I, I do think that it is, I mean, I don't think anybody could have foreseen a moment in history where you had an Adolf Hitler. So he was unpredictable. And, and, and the whole movie's about racing to get the bomb to stop him as an un, 
as an exceptional, unique evil facing the world. But then what he saw was that it turned into something else, and even Eisenhower warned against it. He called it the military-industrial complex. Don't build it, he said, because if you do, you're going to need constant war to keep it alive. That's what Eisenhower said back in the 1950s. Yeah, Yeah, he was right about that. There has been constant conflict and war, and wars of different size and varied, but there hasn't been nuclear Armageddon. No, but it's just this idea of the culture of war, the culture of being this way to each other on the the planet. It was just in opposition to who Oppenheimer was, how he thought about things. He was really a granola cruncher of the original order. Like he was, (laughs) he was a nature boy. You know, Mm -hmm. he was a, he was a, a, you know, he was a very much a lefty and he wasn't a military guy. He did love his country and he was very patriotic. And he was happy to help them in the war, but he didn't want to be—he didn't want to be part of what he could see was coming, what the new world order was going to look like, and he didn't want to help build that. So it's understandable, you know. I think you can see both sides. What I like about the time he was living through, prior to the 1950s, was that it wasn't really a time of people—people people being judged for being good or bad. Mm-hmm. It wasn't binary like that, like it is now. You know, he's bad. Oppenheimer's bad. But, um, you know, because otherwise you you could never sympathize with him because, first of all, they were terrible to their children. The wife was a raging alcoholic, you know. Mm. He was arguably a womanizer. Like, you know, there are imperfections in his personality, but you can't have a free country. You can't have freedom. You can't have art. You can't have an explosion of ideas if you're always judging people about whether they're good or bad. Mm-hmm. in this weird binary so that's what i liked about it you know i i think he was a free thinker and a unique person a unicorn and i just don't think there have been many people like him and i don't think that there ever will be at least not for the next 20 or 30 years yeah we don't grow people like that anymore mm. well um, <clears throat> can you tell the story of the um uh, of the screening that you went to and you said basically it was mostly critics but there was also a motion picture aficionados group, some kind of club or something, that were given seats because there was a section of the theater, the IMAX theater, where you had a perfect seat, you got there early, but there was a section that was given over to this movie club, uh, and and some two women came in and sat down next to you. Um, uh, I, I won't deal with the the ethnicity of the of the two folks, but. The, they were using their, they were texting all through Oppenheimer. And can you tell that story, what, the, what that was about? It was the most frustrating thing. It's a miracle I loved the movie as much as I did, considering. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I got there literally an hour early, and I got in line for the industry line. And mm-hmm. there was another line forming on the other side. And I was like, oh, what's that over there? And she said, oh, these are, you know, these are people who are a subscription to some movie club. And they're going to be let in after all the seats, okay. all the people on the list show up. Did you see it at Universal City Walk? By no, the way? that was my problem. Is I was originally scheduled to see it there, but I really prefer to see things in Burbank. It's so much easier and closer. And I frankly just, it's so hot here. I didn't want to deal with going all the way up to Universal. It just seemed like a huge hassle to me. I thought I'll just catch it now and then I'll go back up there sometime when it's less crowded. And I'll see it in real IMAX on my own. Okay. Um, so, you know, this is not a good theater. It doesn't have Dolby. It doesn't have nice seats. It barely has an IMAX screen, but fine. I knew I could see the movie and just get the general gist of it. Okay. Um, 
So I got the best seat in the house, the IMAX seat, you know, right in the center, half, mm-hmm. three, you know, two thirds of the way up. It's exactly where you want to sit. And as the house was filling up, there were two seats next to me. And she kept ushering all these people to different seats all over the theater. And I was like, wow, these, are these seats going to remain empty? And then at the very end, this young girl comes and sits down and is standing up and moving around and, and waving her friend over. And her friend sits down and they sit there. And literally every 20 minutes, this girl, maybe 10 minutes, she picked up her phone and looked at it and scrolled it. Every so often, text it, put it back down. Picked it back up, looked it over, scrolled it, texted it, put it back down. <laughs> and finally, I looked over at her and gave her a glare. And she looked at me. And I went back thinking, okay, that's a good enough sign. Now she'll stop. Because it was a totally, nobody in the theater was doing it. Because it was a screening. Nobody would dare to do that. Because journalists never get out their phone. No, and, and I was like, take a clue, girl. And then she did it again. And I looked over and I said, could you please not do that? And she just, uh-huh. she kind of like harumph at me. And then her other friend like looked at me and I was like, oh, great. This is going to be a scene. They're going to film me. They're going to put it on TikTok and say, look at this Karen getting mad at me in the movie theater. And so she kept doing it. And then finally, I just put up my hand like a windshield, like a shield. And I just kept it there the whole time so that as she would lift up her hand, I wouldn't have to see it because it's. It's distracting to have light coming into your side eye. Very and distracting, and it's rude. And it's rude. rude. And she was, like, moving around and stuff. And so, look, I, I wasn't under any illusions that these two girls were going to understand a single second of this movie. Certainly not the first hour. Um, hmm. I think if you understand that, like, okay, this is, this is confusing, like Inception or any of his movies, this yeah. is confusing, but by the end I'm going to understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I think that's what they were doing. But she was whispering and talking and agitating and moving around. I was just thinking, how is this possible? This is happening to me. <laughs> like I'm the only movie I've been really looking forward to seeing. Well, let's just un- let's address what happened. The reason she did that is because she wasn't fully engrossed, and she was and she was she was younger, right? They were, I presume that they, they were, were in their early twenties. But there's no way that she would have not done that in any other movie. She seemed to feel that it was her right to do it, and that I was the weird one. Certain for Karen. amount of people do feel that it's par for the it's okay. I think Generation Z does. Yeah, I think they do. I think there's not a place they go. I think they're addicted to their phones. I mean, I think we all are. But most of us know that when we're in a theater, we have to turn them off and put them away, you know? Yeah. Um, but I, I got to be completely honest because I do occasionally go to movies at um, the AMC locally at, in Norwalk and Westport. And if there's nobody there and I'm sitting all alone in the front, let's say. Yeah. And I'm kind of not that into the movie. I'll, I'll take out the phone <laughs> and check messages. Yeah. I mean, sure. I just think that in that situation, it was rude. It. <laughs> it was rude to do it with, um, with but so not many with people. people next to me. No way. Not yeah. in a packed house like that, you know, no, at not. an official screening. It's just rude to do it. Um, but look, man, I think we lost that war. Mm. I think we lost it. I think we all just have to get used. To- I mean, at the very least, what you can do is you can put your screen on dark mode. So that when you look That's at your phone, idea. people don't That's see the light. Idea. Yeah. yeah. That's one way to, to deal with it. But I wouldn't even think about it if people were right next to me. I just wouldn't do it. I mean, it's one thing if you're off in your section and there's like acres of seats between you and the next person. I don't think it's so bad. But, but golly, 
right next to people that's really bad i know it was really distressing i thought this is a bummer this is going to ruin the whole night for me so now i, I now i, I know would, i have to I go i just said you know would you please not I, I would start but if they could persist i said you want this you might, i'm going to take this to the next level if you don't stop doing this I'm yeah i know not. but listen dude these are young bratty girls they will have no problem filming you i see it all the time on tiktok fine What's your problem, I, I Karen? What's your problem, Karen? Are you a racist, Karen? You know. A racist? Oh, because these were women of color, you're saying? Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Okay. You know, are you a racist? Are you a racist? I see it on TikTok. They do it. They follow them around in stores. Well, what you're saying is that uh, younger women of color, they figure, okay, nobody can push us around anymore, particularly if we're non-white. And so we can basically fuck you. You know, you can't say anything to us because we're kind of immune and nobody would dare say anything to us anyway. Is that what you're saying? I think it's it's partly that, but it's also this this culture of dehumanizing okay. older white ladies as Karens, which has become really normal and, and, and casual for them. And so I think when they see an older woman like me say something to them, they just immediately think Karen. No way, yeah. But, you know, let's be fair also, the, the Karens that we see on, on TikTok are pretty horrible. They've lost their... I, in some cases, yes. In some cases, no. In some cases, it's just a woman who's, you know, whatever, upset. And there is no racism charge. It's just... happened to see the one where the woman is angry at a, uh, a Latin American Hispanic party that's happening at a, uh, a communal swimming, swimming pool inside a apartment complex did you happen to see that one mm -mm. he's the girlfriend of a guy who lives there and she was basically basically saying you guys are common you're coarse you're you know you're mexican music and and and, and you know making fast food and you know, basically you know you're destroying everybody else you're you're taking over this pool area and you're and you lack, uh, you know, sophistication. You know, you're, you're common people, and that's the kind of thing that you're not, you're not, you just can't say. Especially when someone pulls out their phone, then you're going to look like someone really, really coarse. But I have to be honest. You know what? What, what I went through with the um, uh, Latin Hispanic uh, couple that lived above me when I was living in North Bergen, New Jersey. They would have parties. Of their, and, and they really love going to town. And these parties would go until, I'm not exaggerating here, two and three in the morning. Two and mm. three in the morning. It was impossible to sleep. And I called the cops on these people three times. And I kicked out of that apartment. The I called the, uh, the landlord and said, you got to get this guy out of here. So basically I got kicked out. But, <clears throat> you know, there is this kind of like, you know, show a little consideration to people. If you're going to have a party, I think you got to start turning it down um, and, and, and not being so loud and noisy after, say, you know, I'll say, how about 1 a.m.? Turn it down after 1 a.m.? They, they didn't give a shit about anything. They just went crazy and great music and they were stomping and there was lots of noise. And they, their kids were, were running around. I'm talking about little girls, three, four, I yeah. can hear them. At two thirty, three in the morning. Come on. No, I know. I mean, I, I don't, I don't really know that I. I mean, I think the only way that it it matters if is you know is in the situation I talk about. Like, I think that if you, like, for instance, that cookie dough incident of yours, that cookie monster incident. 
if she had just decided to videotape you that day, she would have put it on I, TikTok. I didn't act like a Karen, uh, a male Karen. I was just, the only thing that I said was that was questionable was that there were some points she made. I said, I don't really give a shit because I don't like blue ice cream. I'm sorry. I didn't realize I was ordering it. So I didn't look bad. And I was polite. And when I was asked by the manager, would you mind leaving, sir? Because I think we, we uh, let's just let this go. I said, sure, no problem. And I, and I left. So I didn't like, act like an asshole. No, I know. I'm, I'm just saying that, that you know, you, you don't want to be in a situation where you're going to get videotaped and it's going to go on taped and it's going to go on TikTok. And so you always well, have I, to. Well, I would have I just said I have no problem being on tape because I didn't do anything wrong. I just basically. The only thing I, I was but wrong. I know. But that's you seem to be missing what I'm saying. They don't care. It's just a, it's just a way to have power online. A lot of people oh. do it for a lot of different reasons. They just uh -huh. want footage of somebody getting mad. And all they yeah. have to do is say that this person was, you know, they don't have to even accuse you of racism. Like in my case, they could just say this Karen was mad I was using the phone yeah. and, and put me on TikTok. In fact, for all I know, they did. They filmed me. <laughs> and put it on. Dark? <laughs> they could film me like holding up my hand like right. I was. Okay. And they could even say she just doesn't want to look at us or sit near us because we're not white. They, I don't hope that they would never do that. Mm. but and i don't think that they would but you never know i mean i'm just saying like mm -hmm. you have to be aware that there's this other dimension to reality now where you could be condemned for doing something that you might not have been doing like i didn't think about their her being the only reason that i would ever even consider the one girl was black was that with mm -hmm. when it's black people you really know that you can't i happen to be sitting with my friend michael who is black so <laughs> i think mm -hmm. that gave me a little bit of cred you know oh she's with a black guy so she must not be a racist <laughs> would he have any views michael about the the women did he did he, he figured i'm just gonna ignore it or did he... yeah he didn't notice at all okay he didn't notice nobody else seemed to notice nobody else had the had the guts to dare say anything to her I really do think we're at a time where people just are going to have to learn to live with it. And I would have if it hadn't been, if I couldn't, if, you know, if, if I, the house hadn't been packed, I would have just gotten up and moved to a different seat. And I've yeah, done that before cool. with other yeah. people, like this one guy, I once sat down to this movie and this right. guy took his shoes off and with his stinky socked feet, oh. put his feet right next to my head. But what's screening? I don't know, it was years ago. And I did, I just, I looked at the feet. I couldn't believe he was doing that. And I just got up and I moved to a different part yeah. of the theater. It's embarrassing to do that, but it's better than ruining your whole screening, sitting there enduring it, you know? There was a uh, guy when I was seeing The Wolf of Wall Street with my two sons at an AMC on 34th Street. And it was really great. I just loved the, the vibe. It was a packed house and people really having fun with it and they were they were I mean, you know like like barbie you know people that liked the wolf of wall street liked it for the wrong reasons but it was great it was a lot of fun and there was an idiot i'm talking about a really mentally impaired idiot who kept talking and commenting along with the movie uh <laughs> you know the way you would in a in your living room when you're watching something you like this you like that you don't understand this whatever um, and boy, I'll tell you, he, uh, he's a gentleman of color also, and is, and and people were actually saying to him, 
You shut the fuck up. Oh, see, I don't mind that when someone does that. I don't mind it because they're into the movie, you know? I actually don't mind when when I hear that. I actually like it. I was watching some movie the other day with a guy sitting next to me. What was it? It was, um, I can't remember, but he was, he was really into it. You know, he was like laughing and commenting and. Not, not when the person is stupid. There, when the, um. There's this moment when um, Leonardo DiCaprio slips Jonah Hill's character a, a, a little note saying that I'm I'm wired, I'm being mic'd, we're being, you know, and he uh, slipped it to Jonah Hill on a piece of yellow post-it, and he just slipped it to him quietly without saying anything. And uh, the next day, one of the uh, one of the prosecutors comes over and shows him the note that he had slipped to Jonah Hill. So Jonah Hill is basically on, on their side, on the take. Uh, he was he was betraying Leo, and Leo tried to do the decent thing. And the guy who couldn't stop talking said, "Hey, that's the that's the picture piece, piece of paper that he blah blah blah." <laughs> it was like, "Oh my god!" Oh god! <laughs> oh well. Fuck up. I don't want to hear your fucking commentary. Oh, see so, again. Yeah. I will say I don't mind that because you know, huh? I like it when they are. Uh, I do like it when they are involved, you know. Um, you mean people of color because you know that when you go to see or a anybody, movie. anybody, but people of color do tend to to talk back to the screen more. But but um, anybody involved in a movie in, in, in a film festival audience with mainly wealthy white people and notice them talking back to the screen. Be honest. Have you ever? My mother does. Hear the story. My mother talks back to the screen. <laughs> At a theater? Well, she's from the South. Yeah, she does. My mom, she definitely does. She, um, it's hard to take her to the movies actually because of it. She'll say, say like, "Oh my God, how could she be so stupid?" <laughs> Stuff like that, you know, <laughs> really loud. <laughs> well, I certainly like talking back to the movies when I see it in the living room. I'm, I, I, I let fly when something doesn't seem right. I start shaking my head in disgust at something, you know. But uh, but not in a the theater because I think it's impolite and you're you're really like you're imposing your personality and your likes on people next to you and it's impolite. It's just you know hell. I can talk about it later. I don't have to talk about it that moment. Mm. It's like it's like being you know like you know why do they have to have subtitles? I don't like subtitles. And I mean people say stuff like this. It's awful. You know. Oh by the way, a senior critic. I will not quote him. But he's very major, and I've known him for many, many years. Just an email just came in. Jeff, totally agree with Paul Schrader on Oppenheimer. It's the best film I've seen come out of a major Hollywood studio in eons. Come on, tell me who it is. Todd McCarthy. Oh, okay. Really fantastic for the entire three hours. Tremendous. Which I responded, great. You know, he's a very cerebral guy. I think yeah. it depends on, like, I feel like I need to warn people that, you know, this isn't a touchy-feely movie. You're not, it's not CODA. Yeah. You're not going to be able to sit down and, and follow it. Like, it's hard. It, it's a hard sit, I'm just right. saying. Like, it right. really demands your attention. You have to pay attention, close attention to it, to figure now, it out. Tell me when, when you're going to be seeing Barbie. Uh, is it on Friday or Saturday? Or? I'm going on Sunday with my sister and, and my two nieces. And then we're supposedly going to see Oppenheimer that night. But I'm going to try to warn them away from it because... Why? 
they're committed to a doubleheader. That's an exciting way to do it. That, that sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, no? I know. Yeah, I guess I'm just, yeah, I mean, I guess it'd be good to see it with just a regular crowd and see how they react to it. The crowd mm -hmm. that I was with applauded throughout the movie and at the end. Great. They That's were great. into it. They were laughing. They were having a good time. They were loving the movie. So it's not Wait, everybody's. Laugh, there are laugh moments in Oppenheimer? Yeah. Uh, well, Matt Damon is funny and Emily Blunt is kind of funny. You mean the line where Matt Damon says zero, zero would be nice. That's funny that and, and other things. You know, he plays a guy that... Um, Leslie Groves. My favorite, yes. My favorite kind of Matt Damon character is when he plays a villain type that people don't like. Mm -hmm. um, I like him less as the, like the good guy. He's hilarious to me when he plays a bad guy. And in this, he plays a guy nobody likes. And mm -hmm. so he's really funny in that way. And so I didn't write about him, but... Um, but I, but I liked him in it, and uh, I mean, look, dude, what can I tell you? I mean, if you're crawling across a desert and you see in the distance a shimmering bar of some sort, and you crawl up to that bar, and they make you a mojito, maybe yeah, maybe they don't have fresh mint leaves, you know? Mm -hmm. Maybe maybe they don't have fresh mint leaves. Maybe the tequila is not top shelf. Maybe it's just kind of standard tequila. Uh, maybe it doesn't quite taste like a mojito you're used to, but are you going to love that mojito or what? Absolutely. Okay, then. That's how I felt watching Oppenheimer. I'm like, thank God. There's a big movie now, finally. Okay. Um, so, you know, I Mission Impossible was that too, but, but, you know, all hail the original story. All hail filmmakers who will still make a mm -hmm. blockbuster like that that isn't a franchise movie right isn't a toy isn't a brand yeah it's wonderful um really, you know, really happy that there is that commitment to that kind of film yeah all right let's let go we we've co covered both there's no point in getting in barbie anymore i mean there's plenty to speculate about but i think that that, that neither, neither of us have seen it so all we've been doing for a week is speculating and uh and we really kind of need to know them what the, we're talking about if we're going to talk about this movie i love the um the negatives that are coming out and i'm uh, <laughs> i like jordan rumi's uh pan and i like armin white's pan so i'm very oh, what did armin white say i didn't see that can't quote him chapter and verse. I don't have him in front of me. Oh, but, oh, oh. But it was, uh, you know, he basically he said she pretends to make it a kind of a, it's not for kids. It's not for little Barbie girls. It's really for jaded, uh, you know, um, left, left, hard lefty types like Greta Gerwig. And that's a, uh, that's what it is. I mean, he's pretending to be a kind of escapist Mattel, uh, you know, uh, uh, merchandise-driven film, but it's not really. That's not where she's coming from. So. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think people will call it feminist in a good way, and people will call it feminist in a bad way. I I really don't understand why we why we we need hundreds and hundreds of critics if they're all just going to say the same thing. Yeah. Like I yeah. find that really just not my favorite thing about this is that the, you know. Consensus is kind of boring, but mm -hmm. both movies are in the 90s right now. I expect that both of them will have interesting audience ratings. Right. You know, I think that you'll start to see a little bit of more truths there. Uh, I think Barbie will, will do a little bit better. 
uh, in terms of general appeal than Oppenheimer. I think Oppenheimer is going to be one of those things that's that's um, yeah, you know, a little along the lines of Mank, kind of you know, sort of um, not quite that, but along those same lines of like the people who love it really love it, but but it's not necessarily accessible across the board right. for everybody. So let's close this up with a right. quote that I'm going to read. A, an awards daily Sasha Stone quote in response to the Zoe Rose Bryant uh, 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 anger that she posted about uh, Jordan Rumi. And you wrote the following. We didn't get into this mess, which is to say the, the, the woke versus sensible people mess, because activists do not have power. Of course activists have power, but what Zoe is talking about here is not art, it's activism, dogma disguised as art. It's a patient, condescending pandering to make pretend the world has changed. Representation matters, but only if it has roots in truths, not dogma. For Zoe, her identity is everything. And good for her. Good for her. Enjoy it. Marinate in it. But what is exhausting about it is when you have helped to upend an entire culture, science, history, <laughs> art, everything. Nothing is free from the clutches of religious fanaticism. That's a great quote. That's a great uh, <laughs> Well, quote. I dare you to put it on your front page. Um, <laughs> all right. So here is the critic's pick in the New York Times, Oppenheimer Review, A Man for Our Time. Christopher Nolan's complex, vivid portrait of J. Robert Oppenheimer, the father of the atomic bomb, is a brilliant achievement in formal and conceptual terms. Right. Guess who wrote that? I don't know. Manola Dargis. Okay, great. Very good. Glad to hear it. I, I love it when Manola Dargis is in the zone. Yeah. When she writes about movies she loves instead of the, the sorry to have to say, the woke crap. I really like it when it's Manola and the movie. You know, that makes Man me happy. Knew how to write about Barbie. She Her Barbie was circumspect. She stayed away from saying anything that would be construed as dismissive or, you know, negative in any way. She was uh, appreciative of the, obviously, the, like the design and the general thing, but she did not uh, jump up and down with joy at that film. But she knows that she, given that she's a celebrationist of any of the whole feminist thing in cinema and how uh, women are doing, making films in a much more prominent and widely recognized way. So she's not going to... Uh, be honest about what she really thinks about a film. Oh, that's to... what bothers me the most. Barbie, the company, is hiding behind that. Yeah. And and it's it's wrong to teach young people that Barbie selling toys is feminism. It's not. Mm -hmm. It's capitalism. Right. And fine. It's a great. You know, I saw Jordan Hoffman, a guy who absolutely hates me on Twitter, is mean to me all the used to be back when I was not a pariah. But he um he had the best review in Rotten Tomatoes. He's like. For a commercial for a toy, it's pretty good. Mm -hmm. Like, that's just a little bit of, a, a tiny bit of critical thinking goes a long way. You know, mm -hmm. Re remember what this is. Like, it is fine that, you know, there are a lot of ads, a lot of commercials that are brilliantly made that people remember forever, the Apple commercial, you know. But people understand that they're still commercials. Well, yes, it is fundamentally that but you have to be honest and say that uh barbie is not about a toy it's it's just the premise by which greta gerwig has gotten into culture war stuff right and feminist stuff so it's not really a, a toy commercial although yes of course it is because that's what the 
that's what the driving interest on the part of Warner Brothers and Mattel is. And who knows, I'm, I'm sure that the the, the, the uh, Barbie uh, merchandise will spike as a result of this film, and maybe it already has spiked. Yeah. But it's still Gretiger uh, using the the idea of, of Barbie and Barbie World and the whole. It's it's a do- it's indoctrination, man. Yeah. And it bothers me because fine, you know, you want to be. I don't know. I haven't seen it, so again, we're hamstrung by that. We have not seen this movie, so we don't know what it's really about. But if you're going to be, you know, taking a Barbie and making the Barbie a sign of activism and feminism and wokeism, just like they're doing with Snow White and everything else, it's like, yeah. mm-hmm. is nothing sacred? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. can it, can a kid just go be a kid and have some fun? You know, right. does everything have to be political? God. All right. Well, they knew they were going to get that when they said, "All right, we'll we'll have Greta Gerwig write and direct it." So they um, they didn't they weren't clueless about it, and we do know what it's about because so many people have said the same thing. You think they're all lying? Think they're making it up? It is um, a social political thing. Yeah, I mean, right. I, I think she feels pressure to make it that too. Like, remember when Diablo Cody abandoned the project because she said it's you know she doesn't think that Barbie's a feminist icon. Yeah, she uh, said they wanted a girl boss movie, and uh, she didn't see any way to make that work. She it wouldn't come. She tried to write it, and it wouldn't come. So that's understandable. Yeah. That feeling is. So. She's from the old world. Yeah, yeah. She and this was back in eighteen when she tried to do it. All right, I'm going to read you the last paragraph of Manolo's review because you'll be interested in it. Okay. I'll read you the last two paragraphs because this this addresses Owen Gleiberman and you. So it says, these black and white sequences define the last third of Oppenheimer. They can seem overlong, and at times in this part, and and at times in this part of the film, it feels as if Nolan is becoming too swept up in the trials that America's famous physicist experienced. Instead, Mm -hmm. it is here that the film's complexities and all its many fragments finally converge as Nolan puts the finishing touches on his portrait of a man who contributed to an age of transformational scientific discovery, who personify the intersection of science and politics, including in his role as a communist boogeyman, who was transformed by his role in the creation of weapons of mass destruction and soon after raised the alarm about the dangers of nuclear war. And here's the last paragraph. Francois Truffaut once wrote that war films, even pacifist, even the best, willingly or not, glorify war and render it in some way attractive. This, I think, gets at why Nolan refuses to show the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, world-defining mm. events that eventually killed an estimated 100,000 to upwards of 200,000 souls. You do, though, see Oppenheimer watch the first test bomb, and critically, you also hear the famous words that he said crossed his mind as the mushroom cloud rose. Now I am, now I am becoming death, the destroyer of worlds. As Nolan reminds you, the world quickly moved on from the horrors of the war to embrace the bomb. Now we, too, have become death, the destroyer of worlds. Yeah. Beautiful writing from Manola Dargas. Dang. He, the actual quote, which is from the Bhagavad Gita, is not now. It's not now. I am becoming death. It's anti-grammatical. It's now. Now I become. No, no. Death. She wrote that. I just corrected it as I read that. it. Well, I corrected it because it sounded weird to me to say now it's I become weird. death. It's not grammatical in the way we would say it. 
Um, she wrote it that way, though. I didn't. Okay. I, I misquoted her, so sorry about okay. that. But okay. anyway, there you go. There's your answer. Yeah. All right. I couldn't be more jazz, so I'm looking forward to my big doubleheader. 3 p.m., Barbie. Uh, I'm going to pre-review pre pre it in a, in a matter of speaking. I'm going to write certain uh, basic boilerplate paragraphs so I can just punch in the opinion after yeah. it's over. And I'll have about an hour to do it. And then the uh, the Nolan begins at 7.30, both at the Lowe's Lincoln Square. And uh, I'll write the Nolan piece on the train home. All right. And remember what I told you about the sound. And try to take a nap if you can to, to be nice and ready and awake for that. Sure. To or fall asleep. I'll take an energy drink with me or something. Yeah, there you go. All right. Well, nice talking to you. I'll try to edit nice this talk. into something semi-cohesive. I don't know how I'll be able to do it, but we'll see. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye.